This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and our phones are open. Give us a call. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. You can also email us, which I particularly like because then Patty gets the email. She comes on into the studio. I get to say hi. You can reach her at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So give us a call. 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866, because today we're talking about politics and change. From the Women's March to a record 127 women currently serving in Congress, we have more women politically engaged than ever before in American history. The big question is how we sustain and channel that energy to actually create governing bodies that are as diverse as the population they serve. Organizing seems to be the key answer, whether the goal is getting people out to vote, turning activists into candidates, or connecting voters to each other to advocate collectively for their concerns. Today's first guest, Martha Grant, is putting innovation to work for just that purpose. She helped design a really interesting digital platform that enables individuals to efficiently organize at scale. Because if any of you have tried to organize, it's the work of actually connecting with people that is so crazy hard. So she's built this powerful CRM that was created specifically to support progressive causes. We're going to talk with her today about how and why she made it, how it can be used, and what it means to design for a specific segment of the political landscape. For those of you who don't know her, Martha's the co-founder and moderator of the Google Group's Data Ladies Alliance and Rising Together, and she previously served as the senior strategist at the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. Um, So with that, Martha, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. Oh, it's our pleasure. So Martha, explain this project of um, what it is and why you started it. Absolutely. So Action Builder is a tool for progressive organizations to build volunteers into engaged community leaders. Uh, We really started the platform with the AFL-CIO, the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, um, to work for labor organizers, so folks who are on the ground helping workers form unions in their workplaces who didn't have a tool like this to really grow individuals into those leaders. So why is it that they haven't had these tools? Is it money? Is it technological know-how? Or was it just an innovation waiting to be developed? I would say it's an innovation waiting to be developed. Um, It also is that a lot of the databases out there that have been used for this work were databases first and foremost. They weren't meant to be easy to use. They were something that organizers had to go back to their laptops at the end of the day take all of the papers, um, all of the different notes that they maybe wrote on Post-it notes or in notebooks, and then enter them into the database um, at at night. Um, So spending two, three hours, I've heard so many horror stories of folks staying up until 3, 3 3.30, 4 a.m., doing all of the data entry for the day, especially on large-scale campaigns. And then Um, if they're databases, that means that they then have to extract data, bring them into another program to do anything with it. Exactly, exactly. So it is now so easy to build a mobile-friendly website like we've done um, and to make it really simple, beautiful, easy to use and let folks who have very little, uh, maybe are intimidated by the databases of old, um, get them something that works in, in their hands, on their phones, wherever they're at. So this is really a platform or what is commonly referred to as a CRM. Can you tell, explain to the listeners who aren't familiar with it what a CRM is and how that applies to campaign organizing? Absolutely. So a CRM is a way of keeping track of individuals and conversations that you're having with them over time. A lot of sales teams use CRMs like Salesforce. Um, to keep track of the conversations that they're having um, with the idea of eventually closing a deal. Um, On the political side, there are a lot of CRMs out there that are really good at tracking, did I have a conversation with someone about coming out and voting on, uh, you know, um, at a big election in November? Um, And it's very transactional, these databases that currently exist on the political side. But in an organizing project, 
you want to have more than a single transactional conversation with an individual. You want to have several conversations where you're really building a relationship and ideally getting somebody more engaged with your organization so that they become a leader um, in their community advocating for your cause, whether it's climate change or whether it's a union in their workplace um, or whether it's uh, encouraging more folks to run for office. So you were working with the AFL-CIO. How did you, what's your background that you understood how to go about and build an online CRM? Yeah. So I was a history major. Um, and I was, will say, like, I am so impressed with how many women come into technology um, with all sorts of varied backgrounds. Um, and uh, as a history major, I was very much a systems thinker. And I was trying to figure out how could I use my time um, in this world in the most effective way possible and uh, bounced around between a lot of different jobs. I think I had, uh, I was telling it up seven different jobs in my first three years out of college, just trying <laughs> to figure out what would be a good fit for me, for my, my talent and my energy and my time. Um, and uh, I wound up at the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees in 2012. Um, and uh, I was lucky to have a fantastic boss, and I apprenticed, actually, um, as a, a data and technology, data and targeting apprentice, which was how do we use the information we have about our members um, to try and get them to come out and vote. Um, and that was my real ex first exposure to technology in the political space, um, and I was able to do a lot of learning and growing in that role um, over the five years I was there, doodling in my notebook the whole time <laughs> about what a better tool for organizing could look like. So did you um, come into that role knowing how to code? I did not. I did not. And I still, um, actually, I, um, I am pretty proficient in SQL, um, which is a database language for pulling information out of large data, uh, data sets. Um, but, uh, but I learned very early on that I prefer to sort of dig into what's called UI UX questions. How does a user interact with technology um, more than I like sitting behind a computer screen coding? Okay, so you started out, so the history major part actually makes sense to me, and um, because of your interest and understanding in the world that we live in. And how did you go from the doodles in your notebook to actually having this platform built? Mm -hmm. So um, I feel so lucky that, um, that everything sort of timing-wise worked out so beautifully. So um, uh, the first step was I was having a wonderful time at the American Federation of State County Municipal Employees. I was traveling a lot for my job, working with locals and organizers across the country who are involved in organizing public sector workers. And it was, it was really good, lots of travel. And I had my son um, in March 2017 and realized, you know, I wonder if there's a way I could be really spending more of my time bringing these doodles to life. Um, instead of just thinking about them, and if maybe there was a way that that job could take me back to Minneapolis, uh, my hometown, um, so that I could, uh, could move my son and uh, raise him um, closer to family. And um, I was just happening to grab lunch with a friend as I was starting to do informational interviews about product management, project management type work. Um, mostly in the, the tech space, and he mentioned that there was this job opening up to build an organizing tool from scratch, and he was like, you would be a perfect fit. Um, oh, wow. So it, it kind of found you. You didn't... It really did. That's amazing. But a testimony to having conversations about what you're trying to do with all kinds of people. Exactly. Be, uh, it was incredible how the network of people I had surrounded myself with really came together to try and help me find this, this, this role. It really is incredible. For those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Martha Grant, the product manager for a new CRM called Action Builder that provides new and efficient ways to identify, communicate with, and move people to action. Um, are you trying to move people to action? Are you trying to organize people in your world? We'd love to hear about it, so give us a call. Our number is 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So as I was doing research about Action Builder, um, I noticed that it seemed to be deeply connected somehow to the Action Network. Can you talk to me about that? 
Yeah, so the Action Network is a tool that really first got off the ground with the Walmart strikes that UFCW did in 2012. Um, and I actually showed up to one of these uh, distributed events. Um, in 2012, I, when I was applying for this role, I uh, scrolled back through my news feed on Facebook and found a picture of me in a winter hat um, at a Black Friday protest that was one of the first big protests, big events that um, was organized on Action Network. Um, it's an email platform, distributed events platform, only used by organizations in the progressive space. Um, and uh, it's free, free to use for small groups, um, which is something that's, that's fantastic, makes it super accessible. And it was really developed into what it is today through a close partnership with the AFL-CIO, who saw the value in the tool um, and really invested in it to make it exactly what their affiliates needed. Um, the AFL-CIO is a membership organization for labor unions. Um, uh, I believe over 60 labor unions are a part of that, that National Labor Federation. So is that where the funding for Action Builder came from? That's exactly right. So we received the initial funding to build the tool um, to build Action Builder from the AFL-CIO, who had seen what uh, Action Network was capable of doing. We had established a tracker record with them of building to their specifications, building what was needed. Um, that was how I was able to be hired. Exactly. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. I love the connection. So even though they invested in building it, what's the business model for sustaining it? You mentioned that it's free for small groups. Does that change for larger groups? So Action Builder is actually not free for small groups. Um, oh. Action Network is self-sustaining, um, is able to be free for small groups because sending emails is relatively inexpensive. Um, for us, we have more substantial support costs. So unfortunately, we're not able to be free for small groups. Um, it's uh, $50 per user per month for, for groups to use Action Builder, um, with activist users always being free. Um, because we're a nonprofit, um, we would love to be able to provide the tool for free for all progressive organizations and would do that if we were able to cover our operating expenses um, through only providing the tool to large groups or having funders come on board. Um, what we do for the Action Builder side is we have a development table. Currently, that is just the AFL-CIO. Um, their affiliates, um, given the AFL-CIO's investment, do get the tool for free, okay. um, which is very exciting. Um, I'm in the offices of one of uh, IBW's locals right now. They're using the tool and are able to use it for free because of the AFL-CIO's investment. Um, and we're looking to get other organizations to that development table as well. Um, the more organizations that come on board and help guide the development of our tool, the cheaper we can provide it to every organization in the progressive movement. Okay, so I want to back up a little bit because you just shared a lot of information with yeah. me and it feels like it's important. So I want to break it down to make sure I've got it and the listeners have got it. So you mentioned that it's $50 per user for month, but activist users are free. Did I hear that correctly? Yes. And what's the difference? Aren't we all activists once we're organizing? <laughs> um, so the basics, uh, this, this really gets into our user roles in the system. So um, we have four user roles in our CRM. Um, and this is really both for security purposes, um, so that um, information is controlled in a, in a way that, that makes sense. Um, and is secure, um, and also because uh, there are some users that can um, that have permissions to edit large records in bulk. Mm. Um, so we have our admin users who can see everything in a system, and they can also do large uploads to the system. Um, we have lead users who um, can edit uh, edit campaigns in the system and edit the fields that are available. We we made the system very flexible to accommodate any different organizing context. You could imagine that a labor union is tracking a lot of different pieces of information versus an organization that's organizing around climate change or a political organization that's trying to grow leaders. So we allow a lot of customization of, of this system. Um, and then we have organizers. And organizers are folks who um, are saying, like, hey, activists across the state, what we would really like you to do this weekend is talk to your neighbors and um, gather information about these 20 people who've said that they're interested in running for office, um, but uh, we don't know what issues they care about. We don't know 
um, when they're thinking of running, we don't know what office they might be interested in running for. Could you gather some more information from us? And so the activist folks are the, the folks who are going out and having the conversations um, and being asked to do really constructive work um, in terms of building power by the organizers um, for the organizations they are a part so, of. So in other words, the the people who are higher up in the hierarchy, who are mobilizing the organization, they they pay per user per month. Um, but as you start to get your kind of field workers, those motivated individuals who say, I care, I want to go door to door, they can get involved for free. Exactly. Um, and we really, I mean, any way that you can get involved in progressive politics in a progressive organization, that is incredibly valuable. Um, progressive organizations frequently don't have that many staff. Um, and so we wanted to create a tool that lets everybody get engaged and doesn't penalize an organization for getting more folks engaged. We want more folks engaged. So talk to me about um, this idea of this is really dedicated to progressive networks. Um, we, you know, are right now the whole nation is reeling from the various um, tragedies that have occurred over the last 10 days. Um, we hear a lot about 8chan and networks that are not progressive, but instead for white nationalists, white supremacists, um, that everybody's really worried about. How, why is this focused on progressives and what happens if somebody with a different political alignment chooses to use the system? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of discussion right now about terms of service and who gets to use what pieces of technology for what ends. And our terms of service is very explicit, that a group can only use our tool for um, progressive causes. Um, and then we actually, through our partnership with the AFL-CIO, they receive a notification for every organization that wants to come on um, and that signs a contract with us. Um, so we also send that information on to them um, so that they, they provide that sort of added step. Um, we have detailed conversations with an organization before they come onto the tool about how they intend to use it um, and, and do that initial vetting process, just like a quick Google to see um, whether or not they're truly progressive. Um, we also uh, would not hesitate to, of course, enforce our terms of service, which is something that a lot of the other platforms out there should be doing more of. Um, we're lucky because in terms of our incentive structure, we are a nonprofit. We're not out there to um, make, a, make a ton of money off of this tool. We don't have investors who are saying, like, hey, you need to throw open the doors to folks that you find questionable. Um, and uh, we're, we're not out there to, to do any of that. Okay. So, well, I noted the vast extreme of going from right to left. Um, what about the shades of gray in the middle? Um, things that run from progressive to liberal to more moderate. How do you guys slice that? Is it done? Um, how do you define progressive and where do you draw the line? Yeah, so um, it is something that we are uh, still in the midst of developing our more explicit policies. Our terms of use is pretty clear. Um, that this has to be an organization that is actively working to create more good in the world, and they explicitly can't be working to stop unionization in any way. Um, so if somebody is explicitly working to oppose um, unionization, that would be a very big flag for us. Um, but uh, we're pretty, we tend to be pretty open in terms of what is progressive beyond that really clear litmus test on, on our end. Um, if somebody's working to, um, you know, work on environmental issues, work on advocating for policies that will benefit their community in a very specific way, like uh, they want to get a stop sign on their street corner. Uh, we welcome that sort of <laughs> Okay, so that, that could actually not fall anywhere on the political spectrum, just be a positive change that a group is seeking, and they could use the network for that, as long as they're That's not exactly anti-union. Right. Exactly. Okay. Um, for those who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Martha, Martha Grant. She is the product manager for a new CRM called Action Builder, um, an amazing new product that's come out of the Action Network and provides new and efficient ways to 
identify, communicate with, and move people to action. Um, if you want to join in the conversation, give us a call. You can reach us at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Martha, you have been mentioning that you were very involved in the design of this and that it sounds like it's amazingly well-tuned to the needs of grassroots organizations. Can you talk to me about the design process that you used here? Absolutely. So something that we're really uh, excited about is with the both the Action Network digital tool set and the Action Builder tool set, we use a cooperative design process. Um, a lot of organizations in Silicon Valley elsewhere use something similar called participatory design or user-centered design. Um, and we really take it a step further where our users actually own our development roadmap. Um, so we have a development table. At this point, it's the AFL-CIO, and um, about 15 to 17 affiliates regularly show up to our monthly meetings uh, where we talk about how the tool can become better. Um, then I dive in on a quarterly basis, and we prioritize all the different things that we could build, all the different ways that the tool could develop. I facilitate those discussions. Um, so really, I see my role as more of a facilitator or a translator. Um, I take those ideas that they've prioritized, and then I dig in deeper. How exactly is this feature going to work? Um, bring doodles back to them. Um, <laughs> eventually more fleshed out mock-ups that actually um, are beautiful um, from a designer. Um, and we, we dig into the nuance. Is this where this button should be? Is this how this should work? And we continue to iterate even after that feature is, is launched. How did you learn to work this way and develop this process? Because um, it's central to really responsive design, but something that many um, developers don't really understand. Yeah, I love, I have always loved really digging in with a person who is experiencing a technical challenge and digging into their workflow and their experience using that piece of technology. Um, I'm a little bit of a design thinking nerd. I love <laughs> reading about design thinking. Um, I uh, fantasized about working for IDEO when I was in college. Don't we all? Whole, I know. That whole way of approaching problems I just think is, is marvelous. So I just did a lot of reading on my own about how people will approach problem solving, um, particularly with that design thinking approach. And then I was able to implement some of those ways of approaching problems when I was at AFSME for five years. Um, did you need to help time. introduce design thinking to then, or did you have sympathetic souls there who understood its value? I definitely sympathetic souls. So something that I found in labor organizations um, in general, but also at AFSME, is that there was a real value seen in going out into the field and talking to folks and, um, and really getting to know their experience on the ground, getting out there, doing ride-alongs, which is where you actually ride next to an organizer and participate in their day directly. Um, getting out there and doing the work was something that was highly valued. Um, it's part of what attracted me to labor, actually, is I was raised very much with the value that, or with the, um, yeah, the value that all work has value. Um, no matter what a person is doing, that work is something that, that is, has dignity. Um, and, uh, and that's something that's very much part of the labor culture. So in the process of doing this kind of design, one of the things that um, can often be hard for designers to learn is how to put aside what you think the answer should be and accept the criticism that's coming from the people that you've brought into the room. How do you navigate that emotionally, and how do you help other people navigate it so even when you've brought everybody together, the ideas are really heard? Oh, yes. Um, so this is something that, um, you know, I think that one of the things that we're lucky, building this tool for the progressive space to enable progressive change, is that... Um, there's so little room for my own ego, so little room for <laughs> ego to 
period, um, because it's so much bigger than us, and it's so much bigger, um, uh, so much bigger than that. So um, there had definitely have been features that I thought, oh, this would be so amazing, um, and I still have in my back pocket. Um, they're way deep in our backlog of what we're going to get to and when we're going to get to it, but. Um, these features that I just think will be so fun and so beautiful and be productive. Um, but I do just trust our organizers, trust the people around the table um, when they say, no, this is going to be so much more important for our folks who are in the field. Um, something else that I will say has been really valuable for me is when somebody says, um, you know what, what is going to be really valuable for our folks is actually this, this little change or this this feature, um, is asking them, like, hey, can I hop on the phone with some of the folks you're hearing this from and really dig into that with them? Um, that'll help the feature become better. And it also helped me understand, is what they're asking for um, the best solution to their problem? Or is there something else that might be going on here um, that, uh, that we could solve faster or in a cleaner way? Um, so trying to dig in, have more conversations, do more on the ground research um, is always good. But yeah, there's just no room for ego. One of the things I really love in this is it seems like while design thinking is inspiring it, what you're really trying to do is hear from the people that you're serving so that you can build a system to help um, other people hear from the people that they're serving. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and uh, when we get the 15 to 17 folks around the table um, who are part of our design or our uh, cooperative design process, part of the prioritization process, we try and start those meetings by actually recentering the conversation on the folks who aren't in the room who are out there using the tool, asking for stories from, uh, we could say, from the field, um, from folks who are on the ground using the tool. Um, so that we begin the conversation in the headspace of how can we make their lives easier, the folks who are actively using the tool out in the field. Well, Martha, I absolutely love what you're doing, seeing your innovative ideas at work, your passion for helping advocate for people, and hopefully so we can make lots of people's lives better in the process. Thanks so much for being on the show today. How can people find out more about Action Builder? www.actionbuilder.org. And a Twitter handle? Uh, action, the Action Net. Fantastic. Martha, thank you so much. My guest in this half hour is Kelly Dittmar, a returning guest to Women at Work. She's an assistant professor of political science at Rutgers University Camden and a scholar at the Extraordinary Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics. She's the co-author of A Seat at the Table, Congresswomen's Perspectives on Why Their Representation Matters, and author of Navigating Gendered Terrain, Stereotypes and Strategy in Political Campaigns. Kelly, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So for listeners who have just tuned in or who aren't aware of your work, tell us what the Center for American Women in Politics does. Absolutely. So the Center for American Women in Politics is nearing its 50th anniversary. Um, and we were founded with the really intention of expanding uh, women's political participation. Um, and we do that in a couple of ways. One is we simply keep track of the numbers of women who are running for office and who also serve in office. That gives us a sense of where the problem areas are, what we need to do to get closer to political parity. So we've been collecting that data, again, for close to 50 years across different levels of office and really are sort of a go-to source for news media, scholars, and others to get a sense of women's representation. Um, and then we do um, programs um, and research that's, that are both informed by uh, those numbers and also our engagement with women in politics across this country. And so uh, we do research here with myself and other scholars on staff who look at why the numbers are so low and what we might do about it, um, as well as what impact women have in office. So you referenced the book we, we published last fall on the importance of women in Congress. Those are the types of research we do to make the case uh, for uh, increasing women's representation. And then our programmatic work is really focused on how do we make the path to both candidacy and just overall political engagement a little bit easier for women. And so we run a program specifically called Ready to Run, and there's a national network of Ready to Run programs and partners that run these programs in, in various states, 20-plus states, 
um, that are day-long or sometimes two-day-long campaign trainings uh, for women who are interested in running or even the folks who might be supporting a candidacy or working on a campaign. And importantly, you're politically neutral, correct? That's right. We're a nonpartisan research-based center, um, and so we do a lot of work looking at how we get those numbers increased on both sides of the aisle because we know that getting to parity, if we want to get to 50% of women in politics, it's going to take increasing representation on both sides of the aisle. So what are you guys working on now, especially at this point in the election cycle? So we're in the midst of, you know, collecting the data on women who will be running in uh, 2020. We've launched uh, two sort of aspects of both our website and sort of the analytical piece of what we do throughout any election, which is called uh, Election Watch. Um, It's a page on our site that tracks uh, the women who've made a sort of public intention to run, and it gives you a sense of how this compares to previous cycles and also where these women are running. So if somebody wanted to know who's running in my state, they could look at it state by state, and we link to their candidate websites. Um, We also have a page called Presidential Watch, which is more particular, obviously, to the women running for president. We're very excited (laughs) to have a group of women this time around. (laughs) So we have more of a page than ever before. Um, And then related to that, we'll be posting sort of real-time analyses, so longer pieces, you know, that are sort of blog posts writing about the dynamics, the gender dynamics that are at play in this election. Um, And then lastly, you know, we're still reflecting on 2018. Uh, So we're doing an actual sort of report analysis of what happened in 2018, but really tying it to what does that tell us about what we should be watching for in 2020. It's really an amazing array of projects and so powerful. Um, Particularly appreciate that you are really a reliable source for statistics because you noted before that the media often comes to you for those numbers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, even in, especially in 2018, when there were record numbers of women, the only way you could say that there were these record numbers, uh, we're going to somebody who had been collecting this uh, for a long time. Uh, In 2018, we saw a lot of media coverage about women running for office. But unfortunately, it was kind of the first year that we saw such heightened level of attention to women's candidacies in any uh, uh, national election. And so, For some media outlets, it was the first time that they were coming to us. But for many others, they had always known, thankfully, that we're here and that we have sort of reliable data going backwards and also really breaking it down, right? So you need data by party. You want to look at race um, and the racial and ethnic diversity of the women who are running, the states in which they are running. You know, it's more than just those aggregate numbers. And and we are, you know, proud to have, have kept those for quite a while. So when you are talking about the women who are running, um, particularly in the presidential race right now, was there anything in your data that suggested that we'd land here with such an enormous slate of candidates and the gender and um, the level of diversity that's amongst them? I mean, it's always hard to predict. Um, And when we looked at what happened in the last presidential election, we knew that coming out of that election, there was really heightened energy, enthusiasm and engagement among women in politics, broadly speaking. In other words, we saw heightened engagement of women in activism. Uh, so, So going out and protesting or creating indivisible groups. There was heightened level of engagement among women as donors. The Center for Responsive Politics has really good data on that. Um, heightened level of voter engagement. Women always outvote men, but they did so again in 2018. Ah, okay. um, and so for us, and, and again, this is especially true of Democratic women, and I want to obviously caveat that there was a real, that activism and a lot of that energy was really happening on the left after the 2016 election, which makes sense because it was in response to, right, a loss from their party. Um, all of that predicted, you know, that we would perhaps see a, even more, again, engagement and motivation for women to run in 2020, both at the congressional level and at the presidential level, because they may have also seen the success of women candidates who ran in 2018, and again, that enthusiasm from women voters, donors, and activists. Um, but certainly we couldn't have told you that six women would have run. <laughs> um, and, and I think the questions around racial and ethnic diversity are really important ones because we, you know, Shirley Chisholm, 
um, ran in 1972 for president. Mm -hmm. She was the first woman to win delegate votes at a Democratic presidential convention. She was breaking, right, that ceiling, or at least putting some cracks in that ceiling well before Hillary Clinton was. But in telling the history of women running for president, unfortunately, we often focus only on Hillary Clinton. And I think what this cycle hopefully allows us to do is remember that this has been a longer history mm-hmm. um, of women who've really tried to chip away at some of the expectations of executive office and led the way to getting to this point where you'd have six women who'd take the stage at a Democratic debate. And also that Shirley Chisholm wasn't just the first woman. She was also the first African-American candidate. Absolutely. Uh, to, you know, the unhappiness of, of a lot of black men um, and, in fact, white women. Right. Um, so she really confronted a lot of backlash from both within her gender and within um, her race in terms of folks who thought that, it wasn't her turn, um, but, you know, she famously said it was, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody had to do it first. And so I think crediting those women, and it's Elizabeth Soule and Margaret Chase Smith, other women who did put their names forward as presidential candidates, even when they were not taken seriously at all, um, helped us to get to this point. And, and Geraldine Ferraro. Geraldine Ferraro as a, as a running maid, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, one thing you could have seen from 2016, you could certainly have had the hypothesis that women watched Hillary Clinton as one of the or the most qualified candidate for president um, be defeated and say, well, man, I'm definitely not putting myself forward and through that, right? Um, or they could have responded by saying, like, wow, this really points out the disparities and the the disadvantages that often face women. Of course, she didn't only lose because of her gender, but certainly we saw gendered aspects of that candidacy. Um, What we seem to see in the congressional races in in 2018 was the latter, you know, a sort of motivating force, not necessarily tied directly to Hillary Clinton, but certainly that her candidacy and her defeat didn't, didn't significantly depress the number of women willing to run. And, and I think that seems to also be true at the presidential level. These women did not seem to be deterred um, by her defeat in 2016. So whether or not we can, um, in a really scholarly way, attribute the growth in female candidacy to Hillary, we can at least say it didn't interrupt it. I think that's pretty fair. I mean, I will say one thing we never know, and we just, it's really hard to know. There is a little bit of research um, by my colleagues Chris Bono and uh, I mean Chris, yeah, Chris Bono and Chris Cantek on this about like the Hillary effect among general sort of the general population. Do they seem to be sort of discouraged or encouraged by her candidacy? And it does show some folks that were discouraged. Um, the problem is when we're thinking about who's running, we never have a sense of the people who made the decision not to run. <laughs> right. You know, that's not data we collect. Um, so I think there is the potential that her candidacy might have discouraged some women, um, and I don't want to discount that, but certainly not to the point where it led to a drop in numbers, because obviously what we saw was an increase in the number of women, ultimately, that we netted um, as candidates for office. So you were giving us some statistics as you were describing some of the patterns that you saw in the last election. Um, I want to dive into them because I think if we look at them superficially, it doesn't make sense with the outcome. Um, But we have to dive into what it tells us about the stereotypes and Uh, patterns that we saw amongst voters. Because if women, voter engagement is high for women, they outvote men, and especially for the Democrats, we wouldn't think we would have had the results from the 2016 election that we did. So what were, and I know we've talked about this on previous shows, but I'd like to bring it into, to mention it at least today as we think about the election that's coming and the kind of discourse that's happening in the news media. What are the stereotypes and patterns that you see amongst voters as it relates to women candidates and candidates who are candidates of color and from underrepresented groups? Sure. Um, so, you know, that's a host of literature, but <laughs> to summarize some of the stuff, first of all, one important point about, you know, when you're talking about women outvoting men and how that may have factored in 2016. Remember, um, as we all, I think, have been educated on since the 2016 election, it was something we sort of reiterated at our center over and over again, that women voters are also not monolithic in who they vote for. In other words, women don't vote for women. Mm-hmm. That's not... Um, uh, necessarily true. Partisanship really trumps that. And so 
um, what we saw among particularly uh, white, non-college-educated women voting in high numbers for Donald Trump was consistent with what they had done in previous elections. In fact, we saw a shift among college-educated white women who had previously voted Republican but did, in fact, support Hillary Clinton in the last election, um, but it wasn't enough to change that demographic overall of white women uh, voting Republican. And so that's just a really important reminder as we sort of evaluate how women voters behave it's very different across racial and ethnic groups and also by education. So black women um, are the most reliable Democratic voters. They vote at the highest rates. They vote um, in the greatest numbers. Um, and so if the Democratic Party is smart, right, they're going to be listening to black women going into this election, also increasingly Latinas as a proportion of the electorate. So those are really important things on the voter side. On the stereotypes that affect candidates, um, this is also changing. Um, we've seen research that shows that there are fewer and fewer sort of negative stereotypes that affect women. Questions around things historically have been, you know, are they strong and tough enough? Um, do they have the executive credentials um, that folks see as important, especially for presidential office? So in addition to, like, that toughness factor, are they seen as experts on national security or defense? These are areas where women have struggled. Um, and while we're seeing some closing of the gender gap on some of those trait and issue stereotypes, we still see evidence um, that voters evaluate men and women differently. Um, one of the studies I, I often cite um, my colleague Tessa Dutanto did, it's really smart sort of experimental evaluation of how people um, look at and evaluate men and women candidates. And she finds that when given these hypothetical candidates, people seek out a lot more information about women's competency, right, their qualifications um, to be an office holder than they do men. So there's an assumption there that um, people look at a woman and say she can't be qualified, prove it to me, as opposed to a man. Yeah. And what we find for women candidates is that they're able to prove it, right? So this is why you find the, the finding overall that when women run, they win at equal rates as men. So sure, but does it take more work for them to get there? And does, is some of that work overcoming these stereotypical hurdles? I, I would say, based on the literature and based on the work I've done, absolutely, that's part of the difference. Um, and I think we're seeing that at the presidential level. Just imagine um, that somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who's putting out however many policies per day, um, Part of that is her personality, but part of that is also women who have been um, conditioned to know that they have to back up whatever they're saying with additional statistics and information and credentials mm -hmm. because that expertise is not assumed for them in the way that it is for men. Look, we, we know this from your research, and we've heard it. Like Sandra Day O'Connor famously said she had to work three times as hard and be three times as good in order right. to get where she was. Right. And Michelle Obama was really eloquent about talking about the pressure that they faced to be impeccable yes. all the time. My, my colleague, uh, Sarah Fulton, has done also really in great work showing that even when women win at the same rates as men, and she's looking for... Uh, particularly at congressional races, that women on average are higher quality candidates. So she's looking at things like previous political experience, you know, that sort of stuff to demonstrate that they're just better, right? So they are, in <laughs> fact, better candidates. Um, and so if we say, well, they win at equal rates and don't account for that quality or what she calls, I think, uh, a, a premium, right, on, mm -hmm. on their uh, credentials, um, then we're missing out on part of the story um, because that is, in fact, a challenge that women, yes, effectively overcome, but it still seems to be there. That's a really interesting point. So it's not that people with the same level of preparation are winning at the same rate. It's that women and men are winning at the same rate, but the women who are running are far more prepared than the men. That's what and that seems to yeah, be what's, what's closing that gap. Do. Yeah. By the way, for, if you're just tuning in, this is Women at Work. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Kelly Dittmar. She's a scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics and one of the, our most trusted sources for understanding the political world that we live in here at Women at Work. If you want to ask how you can get involved, if you want to learn, understand any of this more deeply, give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Kelly, one of the things that I was reading 
on the website was not just about who's getting elected, elected, but the track record of effectiveness of the women who have been elected to office and are now serving. What can you tell us about how are they doing? Yeah, I mean, it depends. Obviously, folks will have a measure of effectiveness that uh, you know varies. So there's there's some research, um, definitely in political science, that shows greater effectiveness for women in things like getting money back to their districts um, or getting certain policies passed. Um, and so there's a host of studies that show this greater level of effectiveness for women. Um, I would tie that importantly to women's motivation to running. So one of the things we talk about in our book on women in Congress, which is really based on interviews, we did interviews with 83 of the women in the 114th Congress, um, which was the majority uh, uh, of those women who were serving. Um, And we asked them sort of about this, right, you know, sort of why did you come here, and also what motivates you to work across party lines, which is something that the women often tout as different among them than their male counterparts. And they repeatedly talked about the fact that they were motivated to get into public office, particularly to get into Congress, because they wanted to get things done, right? So they were really focused on achievement over ego, and they felt, in contrast, that some of their male counterparts were more focused on the job, the title, or the ego, right, then on actually making policy change. And, and remember, it's, they also feel like it's harder for them to get to Congress. And so they're not going to do all the work to get there and then see nothing get done. So there's a real motivation, um, not that men also don't have the motivation to make policy change, um, but something that is, it seems to be distinct among the women, and it bears true in some of that Uh, more quantitative evidence that's out there to say that they are doing the work and it's leading to results in policy changes or or financial support for their district. So whether it's attributed to the fact that they're exceptionally qualified candidates coming in the door to their motivations or that they're continuing to work really hard to get things done because they know they're under a different level of scrutiny, it's actually probably all adding up to help them be more effective. All of those things. Um, uh, Jeff Lazarus uh, and Amy Steyer wrote a book um, with the title Gendered Vulnerability, and they talked to your latter point about, you know, also they know they're going to be under heightened scrutiny, so they're going to do this additional work, and they have uh, various measures of, you know, the extra work that women in Congress are doing to sort of not be vulnerable in the next election. So that's a really interesting take on um, why we might see women both be more effective, but also just sort of be, you know, working harder across constituent service, policy proposals, et cetera, um, in order to to maintain their, their position in Congress. I have to imagine that their own intersectionality would actually make this even that much more challenging. Um, have you gotten any meaningful research on these patterns as it relates to gay women or women of color? Yeah, so on, on some of those quantitative studies that I mentioned, they really don't break it down that way. Um, we were able to sort of look into that a little bit with a little more nuance uh, because we were doing interviews uh, with women of color in Congress. Um, And I think that, you know, certainly they see that same heightened level of skepticism, right, that they are qualified, that they should be there. Um, And so, again, sort of feeling like they have to go that additional uh, effort to prove themselves. They have some distinctions in Congress, and this is also true at the state legislative level, and there's sort of a good and, good and bad side of the statistic, which is that women of color uh, are more likely to represent majority-minority districts um, in which they have high levels of support, right? So that mm-hmm. electoral vulnerability, once they get in, can be potentially lower. But that, what that also indicates is that parties are not pushing to ensure that women of color are also representing majority white districts, which are the majority of districts nationwide still. Um, And so that's just, that's a bigger problem. So um, it it speaks to the fact that not only do we have to make sure that we're not um, sort of placing a higher burden on women of color once they're in to prove themselves, but also that we're recruiting and supporting women of color in all sorts of districts, 
at the state legislative and congressional level, not just in places where folks deem them as electable because it's a majority mm-hmm. um, minority electorate. I think this also speaks to the enormous pressure that's on candidates to run highly strategic campaigns. And we know that data and strategy go hand in hand. Is that something that the center is also building and helping these women get access to? Sure. I mean, in our campaign training work, um, that's where we're really bringing in strategic experts um, and practitioners to engage directly with women and talk to them about not only the nuts and bolts of running for office for any candidate, but also what are the distinct circumstances that you're going to confront as a woman and also specifically as a woman of color. So to give you a sense of that in New Jersey, so as I mentioned, we have these programs across the country. In New Jersey, our program has uh, our sort of main ready-to-run agenda in addition to separate tracks. Um, that happened the day prior to our our, uh, start of the full conference for black women, for Latinas, and for Asian American women. In other states where there's a higher population, for example, of Native American women, they may have a track specifically for those women. And the idea of those that what we call diversity initiatives is to be really honest with the women in the room in an off-the-record setting about how you do need to strategically um, navigate the terrain of a political campaign in your state or your district um, as a woman of color, as um, a black woman, you know, specifically. And so that gives women the sort of strategic insights and advice about how to even get started and how to be successful. So tell us, with the few minutes we have left, um, ready to run, who's eligible for it? Sure. Any, anybody is eligible. It is targeted to women, but we also have men who do come. Often those are men who um, are helping women run for office and want to get some insights about the different dynamics that affect women running for office. Um, also, uh, women who may not be, haven't made the decision to run, but are just considering it, all ages, um, you know, all sorts of qualifications um, of types of women who come, and some women come multiple times. And all parties. And all parties, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Everything we do is nonpartisan. And again, I think that's important because there are a number of training programs that really are targeted at Democratic women. There are fewer that are targeted at Republican women. And so we really try to create a space where our speakers are bipartisan um, and the information that we provide should be helpful to women of, of both major parties as well as women who might run as third party candidates. So Ready to Run is there to help potential candidates, current candidates, mm-hmm. the teams that are supporting them. And it's a nationwide program. Yep. Yep, we're in 20-plus states, and we partner with other sort of expert organizations, so whether it be another university-based uh, center um, or sometimes with uh, nonprofit organizations in the past. For example, we've partnered with groups like the AAUW, um, and so they, they put those programs together. And the key there is to be sure that we have folks who are experts on that state. Mm-hmm. We know that we don't know everything about the politics in your state, and so we want to craft a program that is helpful to candidates running where you are. As always, Kelly, I am riveted by all you have to share and grateful for all of the work that you're doing. If people want to learn more about the center, where can they find you? www.copcawp.rutgers.edu. Yes, and check out those current numbers. They're really fascinating. Kelly, thank you so much. And a special thanks to Patty and Dion, who are in the booth with me today. Um, And thank you all for listening. If you have a question about something you heard, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com or follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132. And I'm at Laura's Arrow. Uh, Special thanks and best wishes to everybody. Have a great week, and we'll see you when we get back next week. Once again, this is Laura's Arrow on Women at Work on Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.